Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. In 1986, Run DMC and Aerosmith, two groups that couldn't be further apart musically, came together in the studio to record Walk This Way. A new book gives the inside story of that collaboration and its lasting influence. As they're sitting there working on the song, Run and D are making up lyrics or changing lyrics, Mm -hmm. you know? And there's just no respect that you would see or expect from a younger artist to these arena guys. Plus, we'll review the new album from singer-songwriter Emily King, Scenery. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to review an album called Scenery from Emily King. Now, she's a singer-songwriter, Jim. I would put her in that category. Yep. But she expands it into funk, soul, R&B. She's got a unique take on that. We're going to talk about that record later. That's later in the show, Greg. You are right. But first, walk this way. That is Run DMC's 1986 version of the Aerosmith song from their 1975 record, Toys in the Attic. Uh, The refreshed track, the reimagined, rebooted song, ended up being a complete surprise hit for both bands. You know, by the mid-1980s, Aerosmith was far from their 1970s heyday. Run DMC, consisting of uh, rappers Joseph, Run, Simmons, and Daryl DMC McDaniels, as well as the great Jam Master Jay, Jason Mizell, on the wheels of steel. They were young. They were an up-and-coming rap group. They'd had two solid selling albums under their belt. But like nearly every hip-hop act in the early 80s, they had not crossed over into the mainstream. That all changed when Run DMC teamed up with Aerosmith's Steven Tyler and Joe Perry to record a new version of their classic rock standard. And that 1986 version of Walk This Way became an international top 10 hit, one of the first rap songs with that distinction. Washington Post reporter Jeff Edgers writes all about it in his new book, Walk This Way, Run DMC, Aerosmith, and the song that changed American music forever. That is quite a claim. Uh, We recently spoke with him about the book, and according to Jeff, there is a common misconception that Walk This Way basically made Run DMC's career. There are a few things in this book that I hope will change minds, and one, I think, false perception out there in the universe is that Aerosmith, these rock heroes, rock stars, you know, helped out these young rappers and and gave them a career when in fact 
Run DMC were in, in many ways already superstars. I mean, they were the first rap supergroup. And Aerosmith, at that point in 1986, they couldn't have been uh, more washed up. I mean, they, I remember it because I was 14 years old and I grew up, you know, in Boston. So I remember when Aerosmith, Joe Perry, Steven Tyler got back together again and they went on the back in the saddle tour in 1984. I went, it was one of a earliest concerts. So I remember that. But then they came back in 1985 with Done With Mirrors. Done With Mirrors was largely seen as a failure. So that's the point where, you know, there's this suggestion while they're out on tour with Ted Nugent opening for them, where uh, some, really? Uh, but they're, you know, they're in Philadelphia playing a concert, and on an off day, I, they get like, you know, Tyler and Perry are paid four grand to come up to New York and work with these guys in Run DMC. We need to ha- have some context here from a standpoint of. I mean, radio was segregated. Uh, MTV wasn't playing black artists, much less hip hop. But it was uh, it was clearly speaking to a new generation of listeners in a way that Aerosmith's music no longer was at that time. Aerosmith was this big band from the '70s, but as you said, by the mid '80s, it seemed like they were washed up and on their last legs. So it sounded like Run DMC was in the driver's seat here, right? Why did they even agree to get into the studio with? these washed up rockers well run dmc you know i mean joe simmons run daryl mcdaniels dmc and jam master jay they were kind of willing to do what their producers said i mean if if larry smith before uh you know who produced their first two records had a suggestion they listened to it and did it you know rick rubin later you know they did it russell simmons their their you know joe's older brother who managed them um, so that wasn't really the issue. And the fact is, Run DMC, were, they were the first rap supergroup, but they weren't a supergroup in the conventional sense of the word because there was a, a a huge problem with the way that that radio worked back then and MTV worked. Now, you said, you know, the idea that they didn't play black artists on MTV and MTV was taking its cue from rock radio. And rock radio would play a certain kind of black artist, but not another kind of black artist. So if you're Billy Ocean, or you're Michael Jackson, or Dionne Warwick, you're cool, right? Uh, You're not going to be getting on there if you're Tila Rock, or the Fat Boys, or Run DMC. It's Mm. just not gonna happen. Years ago, a friend of mine asked me to say some MC rhyme. So I said this rhyme I'm about to say. The rhyme was there for They played some rap videos, but they played them late at night. They weren't in heavy rotation. So that's, you know, one piece of it. And then the fact is, rock radio um, was not playing rap at all. So MTV was taking its cue from rock radio. And, and rock radio wasn't playing rap. So for Run, for Run DMC, this represented a huge opportunity, a chance to break through on another level, to go from, you know, having a gold record to having a multi-platinum record and, and to reach a whole different audience. That's how Rick Rubin, uh, who is one of the people who clearly conceived the idea, um, viewed it. Yeah, t- tell us about Rubin's involvement. 
you know, he is basically hailed back then as the king of rap. And I spoke with him quite a bit about this because it's not really fair. I mean, one of the first interviews I had with Daryl McDaniel, DMC, he said, look, the real king of rap was Larry Smith. And he's talking about the guy who produced the first two Run DMC records, the Houdini records, you know, and the Fat Boys. Because Larry Smith is the guy who, who in many ways, brought electric guitars into rap and also created the beats on things like Sucker MCs, the beats that, that would be replicated everywhere and, and created this style of, of hip hop. Mainstream rock radio was not very open-minded at this time in terms of its willingness to play rap alongside rock. But Rick Rubin wasn't the only one interested in crossing those genres. You know, both Rick and Run DMC were based in New York City. I was there as a student at NYU uh, at that time. And the cutting-edge underground scene was full of mixing and matching that wasn't happening on the radio. You had left-field club bands like Liquid Liquid on the bill with hip-hop acts like KRS-One, all this downtown art rock noise, Boogie Down Productions. It was a really inspiring time. One of the few people I didn't talk to was Glenn O'Brien. Mm. Yeah, yeah. For people who don't know, he had a you cable know. access mm. New York television show. He was a culture tastemaker. He wrote for Andy Warhol's interview, right? Well, yeah, Glenn O'Brien. I mean, he did, he edited Madonna's book Sex, but the Glenn O'Brien that I knew was not the Glenn O'Brien I wanted to talk to. It was the one I wanted to talk to was the guy who did what you just mentioned, TV Party. You know, in the late '70s, they learned that there were all these open spaces on, on on cable access and he started this this show and he did it with Chris Stein you know Blondie and um, it, it basically is a visual um, you know record of what you're just talking about this idea of crossing black and white and different genres and everything you know you could turn that on and you'd see Debbie Harry in the corner on a pogo stick so just as a historic reference, the pogo has has been done like this. Mm-hmm. You, Fab Five Freddy would be <laughs> yeah. manning the, the camera. Somebody um, was doing graffiti see, in the background. Yeah, yeah, you'd see artists, you know, in the background. You'd see David Byrne show up, or like, you know, one of the Sex Pistols, and they they might have an improvised performance, you know, of something. Um, but Glenn O'Brien is the guy who basically took Chris Stein and Debbie Harry down to see. Grandmaster Flash, mm-hmm. and I think probably um, you know the Funky Four Plus One, and as you know, Blondie then did that section in Rapture, which is kind of rap badly, but rap. Right. And you've got her putting the Funky Four Plus One on Saturday Night Live, which is totally foreign to all their viewers but amazing so you do have something going on there where there's a, set, a sense of like there are no rules here there are no boundaries you can do whatever you want 
Well, the no rules, no boundaries things I think applies a lot to uh, you know hip hop DJs too because it seemed like they were very genre agnostic um, from the get go. Uh, they were willing to sample anything or take a breakbeat from any record if it was funky and danceable, and that seemed to be the case of why a song like Walk This Way from this prototypical hard rock band ended up as the bedrock for a, for a rap song, right? Well, Grandmaster Flash told me, I mean, he, he would pick the record up. I just love this idea. He would just pick up the record and look at the grooves, and he could tell whether something would be, like, usable by how what, what the grooves look like. I don't understand how you do that, hmm. but he did. Um, and Walk This Way, the beat was apparently just gold. When I say the beat, I mean, I mean before even the guitar comes in. Yeah, the drums. Uh, <laughs> and, and if the voice comes in, then you had failed as a DJ. You were a total joke. So all these guys, uh, they didn't know Walk This Way. They didn't know Aerosmith. A lot of the DJs also would, like, black out with marker the songs on their records so they didn't get stuff stolen. So, like, for Run DMC, even in 1986, they didn't know that as Walk This Way. They knew it as Toys in the Attic, number four. But they could relate to it. They heard the beat. They got it. Well, they could relate to it, but they also couldn't relate to what came after the beat. That is Jeff Edgers, author of Walk This Way, Run DMC, Aerosmith, and the song that changed American music forever. We're talking to Jeff about the making of that record. The rock and hip-hop had come together seamlessly on Walk This Way. The studio sessions weren't exactly a love fest. I remembered when I was 15 years old, MTV News doing like a 90-second clip on their news of the one day that they came together. And just the reporter in me said to the head of Viacom, Doug Herzog, I said, Doug, you guys have any more in the like in the vaults from that? And he found like it was like fifteen or eighteen minutes of unseen footage shot that day, hmm. and gave it to me. And I, I watched that with Run in his house. I sent it to Rick Rubin. He watched it. I sent it to Daryl. None of them remembered it. But there's an amazing moment in there where Jam Master Jay brings Tyler and Perry over to the turntables, and he's showing them. He's got Walk This Way on either you know two turntables, and he's showing them how it works. And they're watching. Who knows what they're on at that point? But <laughs> what I don't think they understand, and, and and they sort of half understand it, is that he's showing them that as soon as they come in, basically that song is dead to him. <laughs> because to them, that singing was, you know, they, they, they said it, you know, um, when his words came in, they called it hillbilly bull s. Like, we can't swear, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they were terrified of that song when they when when they were told to, to 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 listen to it and write down the words. There was no genius or Google lyrics. You know, they were told to scribble down the words on a yellow notepad. And as, start, as soon as they started hearing them, I think those words actually are quite rap-like. I think that the rhythms in them, and I think there's a whole thing with Steven Tyler, the good Steven Tyler, when he's on. Like, there's very, something very rhythmic about oh, yeah. that. Well, but well, to well them, Tyler's a drummer, like, too, you know?
There's something amazing about that. But the fact is, the version of Walk This Way that we in white suburbia understand and the version that the, that, that the DJs understood were completely different things. What about the interaction between Steven Tyler, Joe Perry, and Run and DMC in the studio? They they really weren't friendly at all, right? I mean, it was kind of a chilly atmosphere in the studio. Did your reporting show that, Jeff? You know, you're reading the quotes on a page, and you're saying, oh, they're all saying good things about each other. But I had the benefit of watching uh, the video that hadn't been released, you know, in the archives of them being interviewed together. And it's really funny to watch knowing what I know. And Rick Rubin actually told me he knew it at the time, too, so he was a little uncomfortable, which is it's not really clear what either side knew about each other, you know? I mean, Tyler can kind of talk his way through anything. Yeah, we've heard him. We've heard him on the radio before, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I like this style because there's um, a lot of electric guitar in it, you know? And Finally. Yeah, right. and it, uh, it caught my ear. So when I found out about this, I was like, you know, real excited. As you can tell. <laughs> no, I let the music do the talking, you know. And Perry's just, you know, yeah, I like their music. You know that, uh, you know, he can do that and mumble and be the mystic. Yeah. But, you know, basically, DMC doesn't say anything. Run says a few things, and it's not clear whether he's referring to the group or the song. And at one point, you see, you know, Jam Master J almost like saving face, going. Uh, it's my favorite song. It's our favorite song. And Rick looks at him and they do this sort of nervous laugh. It's clear that these guys have no relationship whatsoever. You know, it's not like when, uh, you know, Whitney Houston and Aretha Franklin would do something together and, and, you know, Whitney would talk about how, you know, she had studied her work. I mean, they clearly were not familiar with the material. <laughs> you know, like Aerosmith, I don't know what they were used to, but they had had years and years of being treated like rock stars. Um, there was, you know, no pretense that they were going to be treated that way. And as they're sitting there working on the song, I mean, Run and D are making up lyrics or changing lyrics. Mm-hmm. And Tyler's sitting there going like, no, 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 that's not, it's not, it's not, it's kitty, not the word with a T. <laughs> and they're, they're going, no, 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 we're going to do it our way, you know? And no, it's not looking at a D, it's looking at me. Nah, nah, nah just do it. We're going to do it that way. And there's just no respect for like the, the normal respect that yeah. you would see or expect from a younger artist to these arena guys. Yeah. So how did they come to a compromise? Run and DMC were very vocal. It seemed like they did not like these lyrics at all. How did they come to terms with actually doing something with that song beyond the breakbeat? Well, they were forced to. I mean, that's how. <laughs> they were they were brought into the studio and they were first they came in they had some problem where uh run i guess run needed a car and daryl was the only one with a credit card and so he loaned him his credit card and then run had the car it was like a lincoln town car and he had uh, forgotten where he parked it because he was so stoned and then the car got stolen and they had no knowledge of what would happen next so they came into the studio that day all they were talking about, they weren't like, oh, look, it's Steve Tyler and Joe Perry. I don't even know if they knew who they were. They came in and they were just, ra- you know, what are we going to do? Am I going to have to pay for the car? And I guess, you know, Joe Perry, when I talked to him last year, he remembered that. Like, he remembered mm. they were just something about a car. And Rick Rubin had to calm them down and explain the concept of, like, insurance and, you know, that the car would be recovered <laughs> and budget would not put them in jail. They just were pushed into it because first they came in. And, uh, you know, Tyler and Perry were just there for one day. They did their thing. 
running D didn't do a great job the first pass. I mean, we have a recording of that, which I found from the vaults, and they're just kind of goofing around and not doing a great job. At the high school dance with the Missy who was ready to play. Play! Wasn't she? Wasn't me? She was fooling. And it was actually Jam Master Jay who was, he was actually younger, but he acted older. And he was the guy who would tell them, you know, what really what to do or when to be serious. I mean, he was the one at the board when they were goofing around with like their, you know, their whoppers and, and, and trying to get out of there. And he actually called them back in and said, you guys are going to have to come in here. I'm not using the same language. I have the same language in the book. But, you know, you guys are going to have to come back in here because you're going to look like idiots. You know, you're going you're gonna to look like fools if you don't do this right. And so they had to be pushed back into the studio. But even then, after that, that song was recorded, that was not a song that they trotted out when they started their tour. You know, they, they often wouldn't play it. They were far more excited to play My Adidas. When we come back, we'll talk more with Jeff Edgers about Walk This Way and its legacy. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and we're talking with Jeff Edgers, whose book, Walk This Way, Run DMC, Aerosmith, and the song that changed American music forever, outlines the story behind the hit song that was pretty much inescapable in 1986. You know, this unconventional idea, Greg, to use Aerosmith's 1975 single, Walk This Way, as the basis for a hip-hop song is generally credited to producer Rick Rubin. But according to Jeff, just the choice of Rick Rubin as a producer for the record was unconventional. For Russell Simmons to choose Rick Rubin to help produce this third record was like an aesthetic choice. Like it was delivering a message because Rick Rubin at that point had been, you know, white kid at NYU founding a record label in his dorm room, but he was a guy who felt comfortable moving throughout all of society, comfortable, you know, going to see the Treacherous Three and asking them to be on a bill with a hardcore band or with Liquid Liquid, uh, but also, you know, understood the power of crossing these different genres. I mean, he had done the Beastie Boys rock hard using ACDC's Back in Black before he did this. He obviously understood the power of this. But, you know, what's interesting is I've got at least three people claiming to have had the actual idea of not just using Walk This Way as a sample, but, you know, Tyler and Perry in the studio, um, which is Rick Rubin, also his friend Tim Summer, and also a former editor at, at Spin who was going out with Tim Summer and knew Rick Rubin. It might be all of them, but I think Rick Rubin didn't really necessarily think that Perry and Tyler would do this because he idolized those guys. Mm-hmm. They might have been washed up at that moment. To, to him, they were the Aerosmith of like 
you know, Texas Jam of 1977 mm. or 78. <laughs> yeah. They were yeah. huge to him. To him, it seemed almost like unapproachable. So there, there are marketing reasons for doing this song, right? This isn't just an artistic, aesthetic decision that's being made here. This is a marketing one, right? I mean, Russell Simmons, Rick Rubin understood the potential value of, of this song in a way that maybe no one else in the room uh, did at the time, right? I mean, is, is that how it worked out? How much they knew in the moment and how much they knew in the moment when they looked back at it and it was brilliant is unclear. Uh, but they clearly were on to something that nobody else was on to. I mean, it's really important to remember because we live in this world where everybody collaborates. There are mashups all over the place. People go on Jimmy Fallon and they do goofy contests and celebrities are celebrities will do anything. Musicians will do anything. Nothing's holy in, in many ways. Um, I mean, even like I remember as a kid watching the All-Star game, I was like the National League and the American League in the same park. So. <laughs> We got to remember, there was no such thing as this before it happened in this moment. Now, I mean, Curtis Blow had recorded a version of Taking Care of Business, that song that I know Jim loves so much. And if your train's all tight, you can get to work by nine. Start your saving job to get your pay. And if you ever get annoyed, look at me, I'm so employed. I like to work at nothing People had taken all sorts of samples and stuff, but you'd never had a time where somebody said, let's get these uh, white rock stars together with these black rappers and have them play together. It just didn't didn't happen like that. So they had to know they were onto something. But the reality is Oedipus, who was the um, legendary former program director at WBCN Boston, which was a station that people in the country took their lead from, the, I mean, he told me the reason they played that song, because they didn't play hip-hop on the radio, was because Steven Tyler and Joe Perry were on it. Mm-hmm. You know, they were the bad boys of Boston. They were the home team. And so they would not have played that. And once they played it, it set everything in motion because the entertainment industry is a bunch of lemmings who follow the plan. And mm-hmm. so once they had permission to play that, bang, there you go. And it winds up reviving uh, Aerosmith's career to some extent, right? Introduces them as something fresh to a new audience where they were, you know, one foot toward the state fair circuit. Well, there are two things that, I mean, two, three, I don't know. There are a lot of reasons why it revives Aerosmith, but it definitely does. One is that it taught Aerosmith to listen to other people. So while they were very hard to communicate with, you know, John Kolodner, who is the legendary a and I, I keep saying legendary, but like to me, everybody who was around before, you know, I turned 16. <laughs> so, a legend, yes. Um, you know, John Kolodner, yeah. who, was, who was a legendary a and guy, he had signed Aerosmith for Done With Mirrors and he couldn't get them to listen to him. Well, because this is so successful, they listen. And so when you they go back to do Permanent Vacation, they've got all sorts of co-writers. I mean, they had the song Rag Time and somebody came in and just said, how about Ragdoll? Ragdoll, 
and you know what happened with that song or you know all those songs like dude looks like a lady all those songs became co-writes they, mm-hmm. they just didn't do that before that was one piece the second piece which is just interesting to me is like the literal way that walk this way saved aerosmith is you know they were all on drugs and tim collins their former manager told me that the only way they were going to get an steven tyler in for an intervention was to get him in to the to the office before he went and got his his daily methadone so they had to do it really early so because walk this way was so successful they were able to tell tyler that he had to be at the office early for a an interview with the bbc and you know when he showed up the whole band was there and families and you know and he was like what's this all about but that's when they were able to clean him up mm. and when tyler got cleaned up that led to perry getting cleaned up and suddenly you had a completely different band coming into 1987 That's author Jeff Edgers. We're talking with him about his new book, Walk This Way. Now, the subtitle of this book makes a pretty big claim. I'll say. Yeah. Run DMC, Aerosmith, and a song that changed American music forever. So I had to ask Jeff about the song's impact. When we do cultural journalism, we know that it's not a science, and we can't exactly be sure of the direct line of creation to effect, right? I mean, we can't. But I can say with 100% certainty that this is the first rap song that was played by mainstream radio. So that's something. Two, I think of everything that came after that. Yo! MTV Raps, um, Public Enemy and Anthrax, Arsenio, In Living Color. Now, A Black President. Now, I know. Is it, is it a stretch to say that those things are all connected to, to Walk This Way and Run DMC? Well, I don't know. I mean, like, it's a stretch maybe to talk about President Obama being directly connected mm. to that. But all those other things I mentioned, they just didn't exist until this moment in time when hip-hop became part of our culture, our mainstream culture, whether it was the marketing of it, whether it were the, you know, Run DMC on that album had the, um, you know, the first real deal, uh, which was with Adidas to market a, a fashion in hip-hop. Everything that came after it in hip in the world of hip hop was the difference between it being a secret and being uh, sort of in one area of the world, you know, being on college radio stations or like, I mean, even black radio stations weren't playing it because it wasn't like Peebo Bryson. So, you know, you, you it did, in my mind, change it because nothing talks in the music world more than money. And Walk This Way made a lot of money. It, it changed, you know, the market. And suddenly you had room for all these other, you know, this entire different form of music. Well, but well, I think yeah, you're talking the, about marketing, though, you yeah. know, and, and to me, I mean, most of what followed in this vein, the, the whole rap rock hybrid was pretty horrible, I think, you know, I, I think I think what we're talking about here is something that, you know, presented this uh, this music rap to an audience that hadn't heard it before. But this is the thing that I'm wondering, and I, I don't know how you measure it. I remember watching Public Enemy on Saturday Night Live. That was a powerful performance, one of those that you go, wow, I'm so glad I watched that. And 
I'm not sure that is on there at that moment in time if Walk This Way doesn't break. Maybe it is. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe mm. it organically happens. But there's something to that. And Rage Against the Machine... There is a lot of bad rap rock, but there's also a lot of bad rock. You're talking about, uh, you know, one of the last eras where there is this old school recording industry, multi-billion dollar industry that calls the shots and decides what is allowed and what is not allowed. And this pairing of Run DMC and Aerosmith was allowed, but so many others would not be allowed. I mean, they were still gatekeepers, Jeff. This is just obvious, but I mean, it's sad to me that you look at people like, you know, the guys from Houdini. It was a different kind of, you know, hip hop. But the great tragedy in this book is like this guy, Larry Smith, who I know you guys know of, but I don't think other people do. And I spent a lot of time on Larry Smith because he's not alive anymore and he's sort of been forgotten and he didn't toot his own horn. He did almost no interviews. Um, you know, the stuff I had to gather to get stuff on Larry Smith. But basically, Larry Smith invented something. He's the guy who came up with the beat that 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 really, like, changed, I think, the sound of, of hip-hop. You know, took it from that disco-fied Rapper's Delight thing into what Run DMC did. You know, and, and he really has been completely forgotten in this world. And he made, you know, all the, he made those two first Run DMC records. He made the Houdini records. He made the Fat Boys. He should be held up in higher. He was like, yeah. not to invoke Phil Spector, but in that period of two years, he did that and more. The problem with Run DMC, I'll tell you, they were the only guys who actually had a manager. But ultimately, the manager is one guy's brother, right? So when I went to see Run, he's living in a mansion in New Jersey. Daryl, on the other hand, um, you know, as I reported in here, he had some real problems a few years ago and actually sold his publishing back to the record label. So it, yeah, it's not like yeah. he's destitute in any way, but, you know, he's not living like, you know, Elton John or something. Yeah. So, there, you know, there's something to it. But, you know, when I was tracking people down, I mean, there's a whole group of first-generation hip-hop guys who really... Um, have nothing. I mean, nothing yeah. at all. Yeah, or yeah, like yeah. sleeping no on doubt. somebody's couch. It's like the blues guys. I mean, you know? I, I, I mean, I talked to um, uh, you know, J- Jazzy Jeff about this a little. I didn't put this in the book, but it's worth noting. I mean, it's like, I mean, he made because of some terrible deal that you know he and Will Smith made with the record label. He's he says he makes more now per year DJing than he ever made when they were selling millions and millions of records. And if it ain't broke, then don't try to fix it. And think of the summers of the past. So I know what you mean, but I also I also kind of like the idea that Run DMC did come out of that era, at least with careers and money. And, you know, I mean, I know money dirties a lot, but at least those guys got something out of this, you know? We've been talking to Jeff Edgers, author of Walk This Way, Run DMC, Aerosmith, and the song that changed American music forever. Thanks for being on Sound Opinions, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. As always, we want to hear from you. 
What are your memories of Walk This Way or those early days of hip-hop? Call and leave us a message at 888-859-1800. Coming up next, we'll review the new album by R&B artist Emily King in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is a little bit of a track called Remind Me that opens the third album by Emily King, Scenery. Greg, uh, Emily's story, I think, is an inspiring one, a decade and three albums into her career. She grows up on the Lower East Side of New York. Uh, Her parents are a jazz vocal duo. She drops out of school at 16. She knows what she wants to do. Music is going to be her life. Makes a pretty big splash in 2007 with her debut album, East Side Story, goes indie for her second release, and now she's coming back, as I said, 10 years into her career with this album, Scenery. Uh, You know, she's toured in between with uh, some pretty high-profile artists, Maroon 5, and we both love Emily Sandé. Where is Emily King going now on this record? Let's play a track. We'll come back and give our opinions on sound opinions. This is the song, Caliche by Emily King from her record Scenery on Sound Opinions. Caliche from the new Emily King record, Scenery. Uh, Jim, uh, this is a songwriter and a singer who has been associated with New York City for a decade. And she went outside of New York City. I think mm-hmm. the backstory here is that, you know, going to the Catskills Mountains to record this record in kind of more of an isolated setting. She moved from the uh, Lower East Side yeah. <laughs> to Woodstock. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. According to her, that freed her up. Her voice, her songwriting, everything sort of started to flow uh, from that change of scenery. Uh, a more of a stripped-down vibe, especially the way that album opens with that track, Remind Me. Mm-hmm. I love that opening. Very haunting. This is a subtle record. I... I'm a fan of subtlety because I think a lot of people (laughs) in pop music these days seem to think over-singing is the only way to sell yourself. Emily King underplays it and allows the subtlety of her songwriting and the nuances in her phrasing uh, to capture you kind of slowly but surely, and eventually they do. Close listening is well rewarded on this record. Um, You know, there's different sort of vibes on this record. You know, you get a little bit of a Caribbean feel on, Mm -hmm. on Can't Hold Me. 
there's a little bit of a bubbly funk feel. You know, percolating is a word that comes to mind. Yeah. It's not like in your face rhythmically, but it is moving along. It's syncopated. Uh, she's a lithe vocalist. She's got this breathy, whispery kind of voice. Yeah, it's kind of staccato, too, at times. It's a cool voice. And also funny and tough. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like a song like Look At Me Now, where she's, she's talking about talking to an ex-lover. Did you keep all the records? Do they sound good without me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's yeah, like... Yeah. Did you keep all the records? Do they sound good without me? Mellow. Heard you got a new lady. Is she driving you crazy? Too bad. There's a toughness there that's sort of underplayed, but it's, it's really, it really works well. So she's talking about relationships from various uh, aspects. And then at the end, she sort of winds it up, and, 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 you know, there's a little bit of a bigger build. She turns that cliche wind chime thing on, on second guess into something yep. bigger and almost like a gospel feel at the end of that track. And go back... Uh, you can almost see that thing transforming in a live setting to something really big and anthemic. So uh, a singer-songwriter working within these realms of soul, funk, R&B, gospel, a little bit of rock, a little bit of pop, hard to categorize her, but I think that makes this record all the stronger for me. Well, you know, yeah, I am really fond of this record. I agree with you. Couldn't agree more. Uh, I went back and listened to her first record, and it was a typical J Records release of a decade ago. It was a little too polished, slick R&B. Yeah. I think when she went indie, she found her voice. And really in Woodstock, I was dying when you said wind chimes, right? <laughs> you know, my parents had a place five miles down the road uh, from Woodstock. There's more wind chimes in Woodstock per capita <laughs> than any place in the universe, I am convinced, right? So I know where she came from, the Lower East Side, and I know where she wound up, and I can kind of feel that in the music, none of which I knew before I, I started listening. I always like to go in as a blank slate. I also laugh when you said subtlety. Yeah, I guess I'm the not subtle sound opinions guy, okay? Mm-hmm. But, man, I'm like I'm writing this book, and my head's exploding, and I feel like I can't breathe. I'm not eating. I'm not sleeping. I needed some peace. Mm-hmm. And Emily has yep. been this island of peace. I love her. I owe her everything. I want to hug this woman. This mm-hmm. is a, just a wonderful, meditative, beautiful seductive and peaceful record and and you're right go back at the end of the record is the key because it's a song about commencement right mm-hmm. she's finished one phase of her life she she feels and she's figuring out where she's going to go next and rather than being daunted by that she's open to all the possibilities scenery is just a fantastic record i tell you little buddy this whole island is bewitched Remember, we were shipwrecked together. As often as possible here at Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and play you a song we can't live without. Greg, I already know because I cheated and saw what you got, and I'm excited to hear what you got. I'm excited too, Jim, because the 20th uh, anniversary, you know, normally I'm not, not a big anniversary guy. Uh, when it comes to records, but yeah, I have you, to you see. haven't given me flowers for the last <laughs> 20 years we've been together. I'm going to give you a bouquet for this one, though, because uh, we both liked this record when it came out back in February of 99, the Roots' third studio record. 
things fall apart. That was a groundbreaking moment, I think, for the group, but also for hip-hop in general. You know, I think there were two golden eras in in hip-hop at this point, obviously the one in the late 80s, early 90s that we're all celebrating earlier in the show, and and, and in the late 90s, early 2000s, you had this uh, merger of conscious hip-hop and Mm neo-soul. The neo-soul movement uh, was in full flower. You know, Erica Badu, D'Angelo, with, uh, you know, rap artists like Common and and The Roots. And, uh, you know, what? They all gathered to make this record. Um, Yeah, they're all in Philadelphia. The Roots were a tremendous rhythm section. Philly was kind of the center of that movement in many ways. Um, And and The Roots were playing on everybody's records, it seemed, Mm -hmm. at at that time. Uh, This is kind of an all-star amalgamation of, of that era, um, and yet, despite the fact that there was all these important voices on it, it never feels like, uh, you know, a, a, a play for, you know, fame or, or, or wider recognition. It's more about an art project. I mean, it was named after, you know, a landmark book, a, a Nigerian novel that basically uh, took African literature to a new level in the 20th century, really set uh, the, the, the blueprint for what all all literature needed to be and sound like an address, you know, the whole idea of colonialism, European colonialism in Africa in, in the 19th century being addressed in this 1958 book. I think the roots were trying to make a similar statement about where hip-hop and where music was was going at the same time. I mean, let's, let's think about that rhythm section. Questlove Thompson on drums, Kamal Gray on piano, James Poyser on keys, mm. Leonard Hubbard on bass. I mean, this was a all-star group uh, that played on so many important records. Oh, you you can time. name any band in the history of popular music, the Stax Volt rhythm section or the Wrecking Crew in California. The roots are that good. And, and the one thing about this record, Jim, as you well know, is that you know, you could play almost any track from it and say, mm-hmm. there's a great track, there's a great track. I mean, you go down that line, I listened to it again the other day, you know, pick, you know, thinking, what was I going to play? And I go, you know, I got I got 12 choices here yeah. of, of yeah. Re- tracks that I could play that are representative of what this record about. I landed on the next movement. It's near the top of the record. And I think for me, Black Thought, the, the great MC for The Roots, kind of lays it all down here. Yo, the whole state of things in the world about to change. Black rain falling from the sky looks strange. Black rain, he's talking about African American culture. He's talking mm-hmm. about the new era of African American culture. And I think that's what they were setting the tone for with this landmark record. The name of the album, of course, Things Fall Apart. And here's a track called The Next Movement from the Roots on Sound of Pain.
That is my Desert Island Jukebox pick for this week. The next movement from The Roots from their classic third studio album, Things Fall Apart on Sound Opinions. Greg, that's a little bit of Zero Day by the band Nothing. This Philadelphia group, Stan in Philadelphia, uh, released its third record, Dance on the Blacktop, last summer. Their sound plays off the shimmering feel of, you know, shoegaze we love, but with an added layer of uh, real intensity there, sonically. Vocalist and guitarist Dominic Palermo recently talked to Sound Opinions about the song that got him interested in music for the series we call Hooked on Sonics. The song that got me in this hole of a musical career would probably have to start with Plain Song by The Cure off the album Disintegration. When I was around 10 years old, it was such a monumental point in my life. My, my father just left the house, basically. My mom kicked him out of the house. My brother and my sister were kind of running rampant in the streets. They were older than me. So it was really just me and my mom in this, in this little row home. My mom was brilliant when it came to music. That record was really when I started to notice music, um, and she was a huge Cure fan around that time. I used to stay in her bed with her all the time because I was terrified of the, you know, the, the neighborhood was, little neighborhood in Philadelphia that was, you know, there was a lot of noise outside, people fighting, the bars were right there. And so I stayed in bed with her all the time and she used to listen to what I imagine was probably NPR because it was like the, the weird radio station for me. So it was like at nighttime, it was like they would do a new wave show. But yeah, around that time they would play that whole record and it was just always on. I I didn't really understand the lyrics for the longest time. And uh, he says at the end, sometimes you make me feel like I'm living at the edge of the world, like I'm living at the edge of the world. And it's just the way I smile, you said. So it's kind of like, to me, it's so close, like hits so close to home, you know, laughing at the, you know, the absurdity of everything and the the chaotic nature of everything, just sitting there with a smile and, you know, saying to the world that you're not going to let it bother you. When I hear that song, I, I could put myself in so many different scenarios in my lifetime. Like, I could put myself into high school, I could put myself to a tour two, two tours ago, you know. Um, it's, it's just been stuck with me forever. That was Dominic Palermo, the band Nothing, talking about The Cure's plain song, 
the song that got him hooked on Sonics. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to merge two of our favorite art forms, music and literature. We're going to talk about songs that name drop writers. Greg, people can get sound opinions wherever they get their podcast thingies. The show is produced, as always, by Brendan Banasak, Alex Claiborne, Iana Contreras, and Andrew Gill. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Scott from Gary, and I love the show you guys did on unconventional instruments and popular music. I have to say my personal favorite use of an unconventional instrument, a very bizarre instrument called the cuica, which is a Brazilian instrument that you hear in a lot of bossa nova and Brazilian-type music. First time I ever heard it, though, was on a a funkadelic record called Funk Gets Stronger off of their Electric Spanking the War Babies album. When I first heard it, the whoops, it was a really weird sounding instrument and it's become one of my favorites. And, uh, the song itself is just really enhanced by it. Thanks, you guys. Keep doing what you're doing. Hey, guys. Todd from Chicago. Love the show about unusual instruments. Bagpipe candidate would be Peter Gabriel, who does a lot of world music and therefore uses a lot of unusual instruments. But he had a great integrated use of the bagpipe in his song, Come Talk to Me. Use bagpipe throughout the entire song. Great topic. You could probably do another two or three episodes an unusual instrument. Cowbell. More cowbell. Lots of cowbells to be had. Thanks, guys. My name is Richard from New York City. Weird instruments of rock and roll. James Marshall Hendrix from Electric Ladyland Crosstown Traffic. He uses a kazoo. He used a homemade kazoo used a comb and braided cellophane uh, paper through it in order to come up with the sound of crosstown traffic.
Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Chris from Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago. I just finished the Weird Instruments episode, which was brilliant. I'll throw out the uh, weird penny whistle in Moon A's Daydream. Thanks a lot. Bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.